right, welcome everybody to another episode of the Browns Note Podcast. This is episode 34. It is the bye week of the 2015 season, which makes it, I guess, week 11. This is Ryan Burns coming to you from Dog Pound West in Orange County, California. And we're going to have a little State of the Browns discussion on this version of the podcast. We're going to be joined momentarily by our man, Brendan Leister. We'll have chats later with Justin Higdon and Pete Smith. Some of you on Brown's Twitter will, of course, be familiar with their work. And uh, we're going to just go around the table, even though we'll be in separate discussions. I'm going to make it sound like we went around the table. And uh, we're going to talk about any number of things. We'll, we'll of course, take, take a quick look back uh, at the Steelers game. Uh, but mostly this is going to be a big picture kind of podcast. We'll talk about what we've seen in the first couple of months of the season. We'll talk about what we have not seen. That could be a lengthy list. We'll talk about... Uh, kind of visions for the future. We'll talk about the coaching situation. And of course, we'll talk about the quarterback, which at least I guess would be the one takeaway from this past weekend is that, hey, Johnny Manziel's making some progress here. And boy, does that allow for any number of branches of discussion, including the one about coaching. But we'll get to all that in due time. Let's now welcome in Brendan Leister from the heart of Ohio. Please follow him at Brendan Leister on Twitter. You can also follow me while you're there at FTBL Sickness. Good morning, sir. How are you doing on this bi-week Wednesday? Doing pretty good. Uh, I'm disappointed in the effort from Sunday, but hey, I got a paper done this morning, so I'm doing pretty good. How are you doing? <laughs> yeah, no papers done yet, but I'm about to go into the office and get a whole bunch of work done and uh, hopefully call it an early one on a Wednesday. We'll see how much uh, see how much I can get done in the short period of time. But like you said, disappointed in the effort Sunday. Um, frankly, everywhere but the quarterback position, I guess is the way I would put it. Um, you know, again, way, way too many penalties. Guys dropping footballs when they can't afford to. Uh, the defense, again, you know, they are injury ravaged, particularly in the secondary. I get all that. Um, but again, we're, we're seeing the exact same issues pop up. I mean, it, if you've got injured corners, the bottom line is you've got to change something schematically so that Martavis Bryant isn't one-on-one with Pierre Desir or with, um, or Antonio Brown, for God's sakes, isn't one-on-one on John, on Johnson Batamosi, who has no hope of, completing that assignment. And so we saw all those issues again from the defense. Um, I I guess I I do want to start there and let's work our way back to the offense and back to Johnny's performance on the defensive side of the ball. Tell me, tell me what you're, what you, I mean, what'd you get out of that Steelers game other than more of the same crap? And then let's talk about it from a, a a broader perspective in terms of what we've seen for the first 10 weeks. Cause I think for you and me, as, as many complaints we have elsewhere or issues that we might think involve the team, the big one that's really been most disappointing from a, an expectation to actual performance ratios perspective, I mean, it's got to be the defensive side of the ball, right? Yeah, I completely agree. You know, coming into the season, everybody expected the defense to take a huge leap. Uh, that was what the coaches preached. The players were we're buying into it. The media, you know, everybody thought the defense would take huge steps forward and they haven't at all. They've been terrible this year. Uh, the biggest takeaway I thought from the game was just the way that the defensive coaches rotate at cornerback opposite Tremont Williams. It just makes no sense to me at all. You start a guy, you start to ear, and then you play him 20 some snaps or something like that. And then you pull him out of the game. You put in Charles Gaines. He's cold off the bench. He's one-on-one with Martavis Bryant. He has no help over the top. So they're basically treating this corner that they put in the game 
young corners uh, and guys that are backups pretty much, they're treating them like Joe Hayden. They're not giving them help. So he's basically, they're playing the role that Hayden played, and they're covering guys like Martavis Bryant, Antonio Brown. And then later on in the game, you see him pull out Charles Gaines after he's got toasted a little bit, and they put in Johnson Batamosi, and now he's one-on-one with Antonio Brown. He gets beat. So is there anyone the same thing? Is there anyone that didn't get toasted in the secondary this weekend? I mean, it just seemed like yeah. there were guys wide open. And I mean, look again. I know you're going to struggle when your best corner's out. I mean, he's probably your best defensive player, um, depending on who you ask. So it's going to be a struggle. But like I'm saying, and like you're saying, there has to be some kind of an adjustment that accounts for that. I mean, if you have to play more conservative defensively based on the personnel that's available to you, then you have to do it. And it seems to me like. Those adjustments have not been quick in coming. It's been, a, it's been sort of a stubborn approach to the schematic integrity of, of what they're trying to do on defense. And I get it. You have to have firm beliefs in what you do conceptually. But at the end of the day, the results are what matter. And if you consistently have the same problems over and over and over and over again, I would expect to see certain things change. And even, you know, that goes for the course of the season as well as just within one game because – Within the game on Sunday, there were any number of opportunities to stop letting guys just get torched over the top. And it seemed like Ben could just walk up to the line and get a quick sense of which way the safety was going. And he was going deep on the other side of the field. I mean, which, can you blame him? Martavis Bryant and Antonio Brown are both ridiculous. And, you know, it, it seems to me you need to be prepared for that if, if you've got, you know, your number two and three corners out there instead of your one and two corners and so on and so forth. And again, more of the weird, you know, use of guys like Mingo, of Orchard, too much to me. Um, I, I just saw more of the same stuff. And, I, and what I don't get, and we heard more of it yesterday in Coach Petten's presser, or one of the two pressers early this week already, uh, you know, the, the questions being directly asked, finally, you know, are you going to start taking over more of the defense? You know, are you going to have to you know, effectively get rid of Jim O'Neill. That was basically the question. And, I mean, I think there are a lot of people who think that is at least the bare minimum of the kinds of changes we're going to need to see if Petten is going to have any hope of seeing his job. And I think a lot of people expect that he has no hope of that. I definitely am not that far down the path. I, I think the last six games are going to matter. I think the fact that he has shifted to Manziel, um, to me, that that offers any number of of you know, possible factors that play into whether or not, you know, Petten gets to keep his job. But again, going back to the defense, um, I know you're pretty convinced that O'Neill is not the guy. I know I'm convinced. Give me sort of your, your broad case for the changes that need to be made on defense. Well, overall, I just think that Jim O'Neill has done a very poor job of adjusting on the fly when injuries take place. Uh, I just touched on it with them treating the backup corners like Joe Hayden. I think also they've put some guys in the front seven in roles that they probably shouldn't have been in. For example, um, Mingo got hurt in training camps. They had to adjust um, to that happening. So, you know, they were planning on Scott Solomon. Uh, They were planning on him playing a huge role this year. So then he gets hurt. And then Armani Bryant's playing Rush, and they move Kruger to Sam, and they keep Armani Bryant in the same spot all the time. They're not moving him around, which is, I think, the best way to utilize his skill set. 
Kruger's out there dropping into coverage, not rushing the passer. He has what one and a half sacks this year, maybe two. That's that's not cutting it. You know, he's not playing a role that he should should be playing like last year when he had twelve sacks or so, and he was a force off the edge. Um, and then also, you've heard things about the guys in the front seven having to guess at what their gap responsibility is going to be right before the snap, having to adjust to the way that the offensive line blocks them. Uh, the D line, you know, they they might know their run fits. That was another thing I heard that the D line knows what they're doing, but then the linebackers have to adjust to the way that the offensive line blocks them at the snap. It's just it's way too complicated. I think it's obviously not working. And Jim O'Neill has shown no ability to adjust and utilize his talents properly. You know, at the Bengals game, we talked about it a little bit. We saw Armani Bryant dropping into coverage on a key third down early in the game, covering Marvin uh, Marvin Jones and yeah. getting toasted. You know, that's that's a terrible utilization of Armani Bryant's skill set. That's un- inexcusable. Well, and it, it puts and, your and entire defense all year in a long. bad position, which is the bigger point, right? I mean... It, when you've yeah, got when you've got exactly. Antonio Brown crossing the field against a front seven guy, or not Antonio Brown, but Marvin Jones might as well be Antonio Brown at that point. But if you've got one of those quick, you know, really talented wide receivers crossing the middle, and you're asking a guy wearing number ninety five jersey to go cover him, you're going to lose that matchup one hundred times out of one hundred, and so you're putting your defense in a bad position just from the outset. Not look, part of this is the chess match of football, right? Part of it is. You don't know what the play is, obviously, beforehand, and you're matching up you know, packages of personnel to, to what you see from the other side. And so you're going to be put occasionally in positions where you have an unappealing matchup like that. So I'll grant you that, but the point is it happens way, way, way too frequently in ways that allow for huge gains by, by, the, by the opponent. And, I mean, it shows they're... 31st or something like that in total yards on defense, they're, they're not doing the job. There's no defensive statistic you can look at and go, oh, they're playing really well. Uh, I mean, they're just not. And, and again, I don't care which injuries you have. Let's be real about it. The offense has, at times, been more than enough to keep this team in games. And it's been the defense that is the primary driver behind the 2-8 and eight to me. I mean, that's the frustrating thing about a lot of the, the narrative and the conversation right now around this team is – People are talking about Josh McCown and Johnny Manziel like, <laughs> like they haven't been basically performing. And they, they have. The quarterback play, by and large, whomever's been in there, whoever has been in there, uh, has been pretty good. And, and this last week was just an extension of that. This was by far Johnny Manziel's best performance as a pro. To me, the first time he's even looked anything remotely like a guy that should be competing for the job with Josh McCown. I mean, even going back to a single week ago against Cincinnati, th- this was, a, to me, a night and day performance, it was, it, which isn't to say I thought he was terrible against Cincinnati. I thought he looked like a young quarterback without much idea what he was doing. Well, this week he looked like a guy who had a much firmer grasp of what he's supposed to be doing with the football at the snap, meaning he has collected pre-snap information. There were, a, there were at least two occasions in this game, and, and the one that sticks out to me specifically is one, uh, I think, in the, or somewhere near the, the third quarter to Heartline. Um, I could be wrong. It might be earlier in the game. But there was one to Heartline in the slot where Manziel diagnosed a blitz snapped it out really quickly and got a first down, you know, a 10, 12-yard completion out of it. Just the little things, the ability to know early where to go with the football and get it out. I mean, to me, that was like night and day from, from the Cincinnati game. I mean, you go back and look at that Stephen White article we discussed 
I mean, he, and look, this may not last any longer than just this one game against Pittsburgh. And let's not forget that Pittsburgh's secondary is not particularly special this season. However, um, the ability to get the ball out quickly and to know where to go with it uh, between the Cincinnati game to the Steelers game, I thought there was a huge improvement. Yeah, I agree completely. I think that Manziel made huge strides this past week. Um, I think that comes from a couple places. Uh, just getting that experience in the game, you know, making those mistakes in the Bengals game and then being able to learn from them during that week, uh, preparing for the Steelers game, I think that was huge for him. I think also he probably gained some confidence coming out of the Bengals game. You know, it showed it showed him finally that he can – he can compete at this level. You know, he did against the Titans earlier in the year. He made a couple throws, but he only completed eight passes in that game. He was eight for 15. You know, the Bengals game was better. And then this past week against the Steelers, he really showed that he knew where to go with the ball. And that was the first time I thought that we saw him beat, uh, beat complicated fronts and pressures with his mind and with his arm. Because in the past, we've seen him a lot of times try to run away, try to, you know, escape out out the backside of the pocket, do some of the things that he did at Texas A&M that worked dealing with pressures, as we're now, it seems like he has a better grasp of the offense. He's getting the ball out quicker, on time, and it, it really it equated to a lot of success against the Steelers. I know that they only scored nine points, but he drove them down there. How many well, times? And I, I, object, times? I object to that just from an analytical standpoint. Number one, he was in the, in the end zone on that run. That was a touchdown when he went full Bama. Yep. When he went full Bama on Pittsburgh, he was in the end zone. I don't care what anybody tells me. And, and the fact that there's still not an angle or some way to get that shown is ridiculous to me. That, I mean, he can't end up where he ends up. And, yeah, anyway, let's not get into that. That was a freaking touchdown. And then there was another touchdown dropped. And so, to yep. me, look – let's not let's let's call everything what it is but let's start to appreciate that this this was in theory a potentially a really big step not just for Johnny but if it's a big step for Johnny it's in theory a big piece of information for this organization right i mean let's not get too far ahead of ourselves it was one game let's see how he looks coming out of the bye on a monday night against a baltimore team that is going to want to get you because you beat them the first time through, they're not going to want to get sweeped in division. I don't, and, and look, that's a prideful, physical, intelligent group over there in Baltimore, and so I, they're going to they're going to have everything ready for you uh, come come that Monday night two weeks out. So I'll be I'll be excited to see. I know you're going to that game, so we'll be looking forward to some some uh, some reporting afterward. Uh, but but you know, as you as you look at what you've gotten out of the the offense for the first. 10 weeks of the season. Um, I, I think there's two ways to look at it. Number one, you have to be pleasantly surprised by the quarterback play in general. You have to be extremely pleased, in my view, by what you got out of Josh McCown and what you continue to get out of him vis-a-vis Johnny. And then you have to be pleased with Johnny's progress. I mean, I think there are those that will argue, well, he should have been starting from day one and he'd be so much farther along. I don't personally believe that. I think if you listen to Manziel's comments yesterday, even he will make it. I mean, if you're listening closely, he is just now getting to understand a lot of things that I think you have to have a basic understanding of just to be able to survive on the field. I think the difference between week two against Tennessee and the game in Cincinnati were just two completely different players. And if the week-to-week progress to the Pittsburgh game means anything, I'm starting to get excited. We'll see if it means anything in a couple of weeks. 
Um, but then on the rest of the offense, I, I think you're, you're excited that Travis Benjamin, number one, has remained healthy and appears to be a hardworking, all-in kind of guy who wants to be part of this team. So mm-hmm. that's exciting. Gary Barnage's development is exciting, especially, obviously, as a receiver. Um, but beyond that, not a whole lot positive going on on the offense. I think you have to say the offensive line is basically underperformed, although they've been pretty good in pass protection. I think you'd have to say the running backs have completely underperformed other than Duke in the receiving game. And the receiving options, aside from Benjamin and and Barnage, quite honestly have left a lot to be desired. Even when they're making plays, they're also fumbling the damn football way too much. I mean, just they lead the league in fumbles as a team. I know a lot of that's on McCown and Manziel, but nevertheless, uh, guys fumbling footballs after first downs, you can't build the kind of team that the Browns are spo- were supposed to be going into this year, lead the league in fumbles, have more penalty yards than rushing yards, and expect to go anywhere. So e- even with quarterback play that was better than you thought it was going to be. So, I mean, to me, there's really not a ton of positive to take out of the offense, and yet I'm, ex- I'm really excited by the development of the quarterback. I'm really excited about what I see as creative game planning um, and and play calling from flip despite all the crap going on you know around him and uh, I guess that's sort of my bumbling assessment of the offense give me give me your much more pointed one I'm sure it'll be clearer and uh, and full of better information (laughs) yeah I agree with a lot of what you said I felt good about what uh coach flip has done this year I think he's dealing with a unit that doesn't have a ton of talent on it um if you look at the offensive line there is plenty to work with there there is a lot of talent, but I think that um, at times individual players on the offensive line have let them down on run plays. That's led to some of the struggles in the run game. The tight ends, the fullback, um, they have really struggled at blocking, and also the running backs have done a very poor job of finding holes, breaking tackles, making more uh, making more yards than what's been blocked. I think that that's something that they've very really struggled with all year, and that's the biggest issues with the run game. Uh, like you said, the quarterback position has, in my opinion, they've definitely outperformed what was expected coming into the year. Uh, McCown, I mean, I don't think anybody expected him to play the way that he did. I think that the team would have a much better record right now if the defense hadn't let them down. They did enough on offense. and Yeah, there were think two about or the three Oakland games game, there in the middle of the season yeah. with Oakland and San Diego and Denver. All three of those yep. games were totally within reach, and if the defense wasn't terrible, um, yeah, I, I feel like at least two of them were victories. Exactly. Yep, I agree completely. So there's a lot of needs on the offensive side of the ball, but I think that we're seeing some good things, um, especially with the development of Johnny Manziel. I just, I just hope that he keeps it up. I hope that he takes advantage of the bye week. Um, and I'm excited to see him on Monday night against Baltimore. Yeah, uh, and by taking advantage of the bye week, I hope that means doing very little socially. <laughs> I, uh, mm-hmm. I'm, I want the kid to – look, it's hard. He's not going to be 23 until, like, December, right? I mean, it, it's, it's, yep. it's always important to, when you're a fan, kind of process that and keep it in perspective because, I mean, I know at 22 what I was prepared for and the kind of scrutiny and professionalism that I was – or was not prepared for, as the case may be. And, and I just – I think – that's the gig, and so there's no crying about it. But it's also, I mean, pe- when, when, when P- 
people just dismiss the off the field stuff as though it doesn't matter or just say, well, he should just be handed the job. You know, that's where I have a lot of trouble with that because you're talking about a room full of guys, a lot of whom have, you know, wives and children and families and, you know, jobs that they're trying to keep. And when you put a quarterback out there who isn't ready and doesn't know what he's doing, you're really telling all those guys that, I mean, you're telling them something that they don't want to hear, I'll tell you that. And so I think to me, as I sort of wind this back into the big picture, I think the handling of Manziel, I mean, honestly, I know a lot of people hate it. I think it's been pretty good. Uh, and by pretty good, I'm, I'm giving it A- minus or better because they didn't just hand him the job. His Imagine if they'd have handed that guy the job last year and he'd have behaved the way he did. Imagine how bad that looks and how bad that is for your organization. And so the fact that he was held to the same standard that everybody else was and had to show that he will show up and go to work and and learn the craft of the position and get to a point where putting him in the game is something they can do because they trust him, at least from an on-the-field standpoint. The fact that they were able to create that in him, to me, is argument number one in favor of not cleaning house again. Um, the, the, and granted, this sort of presupposes that we're going to see some continued evidence of this over the next six weeks, right? If Manziel goes out there and lays an egg, well, you're probably cleaning house and everybody's gone, including Manziel. But if we're seeing progress, um, it, it seems to me that it would be awfully, awfully ill-advised to go breaking up the environment that created that progress. I agree completely. I think uh, that what you said about you know, Pettin handling the situation well, the offensive coaches handling the situation well. I think at that point, it stands pretty firm. If you look at the development Manziel has made, um, it seems that rehab helped helped him in spite of, you know, some of the things that have happened this year. It seems that he helped, it helped him to be a better teammate, a better guy in the organization, and someone that the team can count on. At least it looks that way now. Um, we'll see if he keeps his head on straight off the field and everything, but that remains to be seen. But at this point, I think they've handled it well. And I like the fact that they made him earn the job. You know, he, they didn't give him the job right off the bat uh, coming out of the Cincinnati game. They, they pretty much said that he didn't really play well enough. And if McCown was healthy, he would have started the game against the Steelers, but McCown wasn't healthy. Manziel went out there, and he took advantage of the opportunity. He played a lot better, and he earned the job. And I think that's huge. I agree about what you said about um, if they had given him the job right off the bat, that would have looked terrible. I think if they had given him the job last year over Hoyer, it would have just reinforced his behavior too. I mean, it would have just totally oh, yeah. told Johnny he can get away with anything. And and yeah, you know, it's clear he he knows that he can't both on the field and off now. Yeah, there there would have been no changes in him, I, I would say. I think that we would have just gotten just uh, yeah. a really bad quarterback and very undeveloped and not prepared, and he probably would have been a bust and not lasted very long at all. And team last year would have been very bad. <laughs> very Who knows bad. how long the coaching staff would have lasted. So I think that they handled it well. I agree. And I think that the people that – say that the, the situation hasn't been handled well probably or people that haven't paid attention to the situation very closely um you and i both know that we pay attention to it much closer than most people do so 
Yeah, it is <laughs> what it is. I mean, you look, yep. there are arguments to be had about it, but I mean, you can tell me, you know, Johnny should have been playing this whole time and they'd be further along. I will never ever believe that at this point not after what i've seen so um uh, you know continued progress hopefully there i mean you look across the board on the i'm just looking at some of the offensive numbers now i mean they're leading rusher for god's sakes is isaiah crowell he's got 107 attempts an average of 3.1 per carry and a touchdown i mean it's just brutal on in the running game and i'm wondering um this is one thing i want to touch on before we go what what in the run game you know, you're in the middle of a season. Obviously, your playbook is what it is. Um, but what can you do in terms of adjusting in season to such a poor, a continued poor performance in a specific area of the game? In this, in this instance, the, uh, the rush offense. You know, you're an offensive coordinator. How does this work when you're in the middle of a season and an entire facet of your game is just total garbage? What can you do in the course of a season? You know, you don't have an entire camp to start working on stuff. So what can you do at this juncture in order to try and increase productivity and get better at it? I think just changing, changing some things. You know, you just have to keep working with it. You have to keep experimenting, seeing what works, seeing what doesn't. Um, I expected them to play Glenn Winston more than they did. He only got seven snaps on Sunday. I think that he... He's a guy that they should try to fit in a little more. I liked what I saw of him. This sounds crazy, but two preseasons ago uh, when he was with the 49ers, I thought he looked like a pretty good running back. I was excited when the Browns got him, but he just never really got an opportunity last year because he was behind Ben Tate, Terrence West, Isaiah Crowell, uh, but they've kept him around. I'm interested to see him. But other than that, it's just it's tough. You know, the players have to execute the blocking schemes. Um the coaches have to do a good job of understanding what the defense is doing up front and then running what works against that front. Because um, there's certain runs that just aren't going to work against certain looks, and I yeah. think they've dealt with that a little bit. Uh, the quarterback has to get them into the right looks. Uh, that was something that uh, his name, it's uh, Big Duke 50 Do you follow him on yeah, Twitter? Yeah, I do. Yeah, he actually I asked him about the run game struggles for the Browns, and he said that he thought that McCown was a problem because he wasn't getting them into the right uh, into the right run plays, and also because he wasn't pushing the ball downfield enough. That one, I so believe. I think that's a factor, also. Yeah, yeah I yeah. agree. I think that pushing the ball down the field would really help the the run game a little bit too. But but when you have running backs that aren't breaking tackles. Well, and we you don't have Duke you Duncan. don't have great downfield receivers, really. I mean, Benjamin can fly, but aside from that, they don't have a lot of guys oh, yeah. that that you want running nine routes against corners that can go make plays. And so, look, that's to me that was just one more thing that got highlighted this weekend. Um, they need playmakers on the outside. I, I like Benjamin. I want them to keep Benjamin. I would not pay him like a number one wide receiver, which is what some people are talking about. Um, but you're 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 in dire need of dynamic playmakers on the offensive side of the ball because when you can to me it was so stark when you're watching on one side you've got Martavis Bryant making alien plays you've got Antonio Brown as one of the top two or three receivers in the game at worst and and guys like Marcus Wheaton who is awfully awfully good I mean the guys the Browns have to me are not those kinds of playmakers. There, there are some guys that can do some things. They're, they're effective and they're scrappy, and I like them. But that doesn't change the fact that in a league where playmakers are starting to make an awful lot of differences, 
Um, if you don't have any, it's a pretty big problem. And, and to me, that, that's one of those areas where I, I think they've done a lot of drafting over the past several years without addressing that much at all. I, I do think it, the time has come there. Um, I, I, you know, before we go, I wanted to, I wanted to sort of put everybody in this seat and ask them what you're going to do if you're Jimmy Haslam. Um, I, I, you and I have had various conversations on it that I, that could go, I suppose, kind of either way. So I'm curious what your feeling on it is. I know, um, you've, you've certainly explained that O'Neill probably needs to go. Aside from that though, are you in the, you know, the boat that says, Hey, it's time to clean house. Are you firing farmer or Petten and or both? What kind of, where are you on all that stuff? Because I want, I, I figure I'm going to get three sort of varying opinions on it. Um, I, I I'll give mine at some juncture in here, but, uh, but, but let's hear yours. Right now, I think that Haslam needs to see how the rest of the season plays out. You know, there are six games left. Let's see how the young quarterback does. Let's see if things change coming out of the bye week on defense. Um, let's let's just give us some more time for now. Um, I have mixed feelings on on Petten right now because he just doesn't seem like he's stepped in on defense and you know taken charge. It doesn't seem like he's done anything to really make any changes on that side of the ball, make any adjustments. It seems like he's just kind of let his assistant coaches um, run the ship into the ground, kind of. So that is very concerning to me. But on the offensive side of the ball, as I've said, I've seen things to be excited about. Um, So I want to see how the rest of the season plays out when it comes to his situation. As for Farmer, I just think that part of the issue with the picks that he has made has been Tetton's system. You know, he wants the players to earn the right to play. So that's why we haven't seen Manziel play to this point. He never earned it until this past week. Right. And then Justin Gilbert, you know, that was a Petten pick. And I've heard that when Petten got in the building, uh, or when, I meant to say, when Justin Gilbert got in the building, Petten kind of turned on him because he saw how immature he was and stuff. So we'll see if he turns it around. But I think that the biggest thing with Farmer is just, He's brought in talent. He's brought talented players into the building, in my opinion, but they haven't always been utilized the way that he thought they should be. So that is less of a Ray Farmer problem, in my opinion, and more of a just coach and general manager and everybody being on the same page issue. That's what I see. So I don't. I haven't seen anything from Farmer that makes me think, oh, he needs to go. He needs to be fired. But I do think that this staff. Uh, this organization, just from top to bottom, has to be on the same page for them to be successful moving forward. And at this point, it's pretty obvious, in my opinion, that they're not on the same page, and that has to change. Well, and if you're Jimmy Haslam, to me, this is what it comes down to. It, you Look, let's call it what it is. He had something to do with the fact that they chose Johnny Manziel when they did. And... You want that to work out for every obvious reason. Number one, it would be just nice if it did for your team. But number two, he's Johnny Manziel. And so that would be profitable for you for any number of reasons as Jimmy Haslam. And so uh, I expect him to be hoping that Johnny shows continued progress. And if he does, I think what he's going to do is basically stand pat. I mean, I do think there will be sort of some forced change on the O'Neill front. And I can imagine a world where Petten gets himself fired making sure that, you know, going down with the ship there, uh, so to speak. I, I, I think it would be a poor decision on Petten's part. 
Um, but nevertheless, I, I could imagine a world where Petten says, well, if you're firing O'Neill, I'm gone too. Um, but let's jump off that bridge when we get to it. I think you got to look, this is not just about stability for stability's sake. It's not just about standing pat. Although <laughs> at some point there is something to be said for, for the first one of those things. But I do think that as long as there is apparent progress with the quarterback and as long as you feel like that room and that position is getting, con- getting considerably better, I, man, it would be really hard for me to break up anything around it. Straight up, because looking around the league, and and I thought Uncle Chaps had a great tweet the other day, but it's basically, man, if you do not have a quarterback, you have nothing in this league. It doesn't matter if you've got all kinds of other stuff around it. If you have a court, if you don't have a quarterback, you got nothing. And if if you're Jimmy Haslam at the end of it, and you feel like you've got a chance to have a quarterback in Johnny Manziel, to me, there is no way you break up what created that. And at, I mean, to me, what created that was. The number one, the culture and the system that said, no, Johnny Manziel, we're not going to just give you the job. Number two, the coaches that have instructed him and the, the guy in the quarterback room in McCown that has helped him to develop in such a short period of time. So again, let's not get too far ahead of ourselves in terms of assuming that what we saw on Sunday from Johnny is some permanent thing. But at the same time, if that's the kind of player we're looking at come week 17, you're not going to convince me with any amount of wordage that they ought to fire those coaches. You're just not. So that's yeah. where, that's where I will leave it on, on that front. Yeah. I think, uh, you made some good points about that. Definitely. Um, I agree. It, it is hard to break up, uh, what's going on if the quarterback position is making progress. And, and that, that is a great point about if you don't have a quarterback, uh, you have nothing that, that is basically, what we're seeing in today's NFL. And I think a function of that is a lot of the league, a lot of the, you know, position players outside of the quarterback just being a lot of the same level of talent. You know, some guys get more hype than other guys, but I think for the most part the NFL, a lot of those guys are on the same level. Yep. And it takes good coaches to get the most out of them. And then it takes a quarterback to also elevate the play of those guys that are all kind of on the same level. So, that's why we see the difference being often the quarterback and the coaches. Yep, that makes sense to me. All right, man, it's been a good chat. I'm going to wrap this one as uh, I will be placing it uh, in, the, in the queue with both uh, Justin's and Pete's later that I am hoping to get to later today. So uh, enjoyed it, and uh, we'll look forward to talking to you next week as usual. Sounds good. All right, very pleased to be joined now on the podcast by Justin Higdon. You can be following him, and you should be, at AFC2NFC on Twitter. He does a lot of good work at Draft Breakdown and Browns Beat uh, Draft Breakdown podcast as well. So he's, uh, he's a man of many hats over there. I'm sure it's not just clips. It's podcasting. It's writing. It's the whole bit. And I've always uh, I've known him as a Browns fan first via Twitter, and so we're going we're gonna to stick to that for the most part tonight. It's, uh, it's good to finally talk to you, man. How are you doing, Justin? I'm doing great, Ryan. It's a pleasure to finally talk to you. I know we go way back on Twitter. We do. Uh, you're one of the first people that followed me, so it's an honor to finally talk to you. <laughs> yeah, and, and, you know, you were definitely early, early, uh, you know, my 
sickness dog pound out there on the uh, on the Twitter web. It's fun to fun to connect with folks who have similar interests and and even occasionally can discuss those interests in in reasonable fashion. And so that's what we're going to do uh, tonight, as I have ample evidence that you are capable. So so let's get to it. I know um, folks are generally obviously in a mood of disappointment over the uh, the first ten weeks of the season, and rightfully so. It's been ugly in a lot of ways. Um, I suppose there are positives and silver linings and all that, but I guess before we dig into anything real deep, why don't you sort of give me your, you know, your state of the Browns assessment here 10 weeks in, both in terms of this season and then even the bigger picture, if you will. You know, you've, you're always looking at it both in terms of the immediate season and then, you know, you've got the, the picture of the overall regime and how they've constructed a program or haven't, as the case may be. Give me, give me your kind of dual assessments there, if you would. I think the biggest takeaway for me is that I'm I'm frustrated with the way the season's gone because I actually think they have some pretty talented players on the roster. And I think that's kind of – if anybody that's been following me or following my writing at Browns Beat has kind of caught on to that because um, I just don't feel like this is a well-coached team or, or I don't necessarily think – that the coaches have put a good plan in place to use the talent that they have on the roster. And I think that's my biggest frustration with, with the way the entire season's going. And we'll get into that more, I'm sure, but um, just I, I just feel like guys are being misused or not used enough. Um, um, but, you know, the thing is, I, I just don't think like the, that everything is, is so bad that maybe people think that there's no light at the end of the tunnel. My frustration is that I do think there's a light at the end of the tunnel and that there are players on the roster that are capable of getting them there, but there's got to be that thing that clicks, that, that mindset or the so, something has to give with the way these guys are being used or the plan that's in place. And I think that we're going to start seeing some of that. If, if I'm correct, I think we're going to start seeing that turn now that Manziel's been named a starter. So I, I think there is some excitement on my end for the rest of the season just in that Manziel looks like a player that I thought he could be. And now we're going to get to see if that can come to fruition in the last few games and then see heading into the offseason if we can start focusing on things other than quarterback, <laughs> which would be just amazing to me. If we could go into an offseason and know that we have a young quarterback, to build around and not have to talk about that. Yeah, no kidding, right? I mean, that really is going to be kind of the the test for the next six weeks. And I think there are those that'll that'll tell you almost regardless of what they see in the next six weeks that that question can't possibly be answered in full. And uh, you know, I'm sympathetic to that argument, but I'm also um, I, I'm also kind of loath to toss guys aside after two years, one of which was completely wasted. Um, and granted, Manziel's kind of a unique or easy case, depending on who you ask, I suppose, but, um, and, and we will certainly get into that, but let's, let's dive into a little bit that question of how guys are being used, because I want to, I want to, I want to drill down on as to whether it's the whole picture or just, it's an issue because to me, I see that like crazy on the defensive side of the ball. I have some questions on the offensive side of the ball, but basically at this juncture where I'm at, and maybe part of this is that that Flip is in his first year here, whereas O'Neal's in his second, and they were supposed to be uh, sort of the strength of the team. And so there are things working in various directions here. But the way I see it, I'm more or less prepared to give everybody on the coaching side, on the offensive side of the ball, the benefit of the doubt. On the defensive side of the ball, I just 
I have questions at every level, and they aren't really personnel-based except for when we talk about how the personnel is used. It's not like, like you're saying. I really do feel like they've got enough guys on that side of the ball that are talented, even, even while they're missing Joe Hayden, that they ought to be more consistently effective. And it does come down to things like, why the hell is Paul Kruger dropping into coverage? Why is Barkevius Mingo only seeing the field for 20 snaps? Why is Justin Gilbert never seeing the field in situations when we've got Antonio Brown matched up, singled up with Johnson Batamosi and no safety help? Uh, I mean, that's, there's just no way that's ever going to work. The only hope you have is if the guy can match up athletically, and that's clearly not going to be Batamosi. If it's going to be anybody, despite all his other deficiencies, it's going to be Gilbert. And so I have uh, you know, any number of questions. I mean, I know there are some young dudes playing, but is it, do you see this across the board, or is this mostly a defensive issue as you see it? Um, in a way, it's across the board, and I think the reason I see that uh, Mike Patton seems to have his favorites, and uh, having talked to a couple people who might know more about it than I do, that opinion's been validated to a degree. It's and certainly think, not. Yeah, you're not the only person to have heard that. I mean, that that's out there. No, no question. Yeah, and I think Justin Gilbert is a guy that Mike Patton. If you talk to to people who are kind of in the know. Uh, Gilbert's a player that Mike Pettin wanted, or at least that type of player, and seems to have given up on him almost immediately. And I get that he was immature, and that uh, he certainly made some of his own bed, and, and he's lying in it right now. But um, we saw it with Gilbert. We we saw it with Terrence West, who was jettisoned during preseason. I just wonder how much Mike Pettin tries to make it work, and. Um, then the other part of it is that, from what I understand, Petten gives a lot of freedom to his assistant coaches in terms of uh, who goes in in rotations. And I don't know if that's necessarily O'Neal or Flip or if it's the position coaches. It might be a little bit of both. But it seems like, whatever the case may be, we see these these strange rotations. And it really, like, really came to a head on Sunday, I think, when we saw uh, Charles Gaines who was a six-round pick, and he's been on injured reserve all year, and he gets key snaps against Martavis Bryant, which is not even a player that he remotely matches up well against. And not only is Gaines getting those snaps, but he's being rotated with Batamosi. And, um, And, I mean, let's be real about that. Batamosi's not a corner. I no, mean, I mean, he's a special teams player. Yeah, he's a special teams player, and he's a special teams player from Stanford who is very good in that role. But the bottom line is you can only have one of those guys, in my opinion, on your roster. When you're, when you're digging up an NFL roster and you've got 53 guys, I mean, you're not going to find multiple special teams specialists on the Patriots and the Packers and stuff. I mean, you're going to find Matt Slater, who's a pro bowler every year, and that's going to be it. And the Browns have three, three or four guys coming into the season where that seems like it was their primary role. And now due to injuries and such, they're thrust into playing real football and it's become a huge problem. Yeah. And you make a good point. Um, Tank Carter was another one of those guys that we heard is going to be assured of a roster spot back in basically July or early August. And now Hayes Pollard is in Jacksonville as a result. Right. And, and Carter at one point during the season, which is crazy to me, Carter actually got more defensive snaps than Chris, uh, Chris Kirksey, who's one of their few young, bright stars or potential stars, I think. And, um, what they, the explanation that Petten gave was that they needed to save Kirksey for special team snaps. My mind was blown when 
he said that because I thought, isn't that what Tank Carter's on the team for? Yeah. And now you're saying you have to save Chris Kirksey for that? It made no sense. And there's a lot of things like that that have been going on the entire year. So let me ask you, it sounds like, I mean, you certainly aren't ringingly endorsing Petten thus far. So we might as well just dive into the pool at, uh, on this. I mean, are you at a point, I mean, keeping in mind where we are in their progression, we're a year and a, a, year and a half or a little more than that into, into Petten's regime, into Farmer's regime, and we all know what preceded that, both in terms of the year or two preceding that and the 15 years preceding that. We, we all know what an unstable mess the organization has been for a long time. And we all know that uh, various permutations of firings and hirings have not gotten them a hell of a lot closer. However, that doesn't mean it's not the right thing to do at any juncture. And there are plenty of people talking about it now, so we might as well do so as well. Are you, in a posi- are you at a point yet where you're jettisoning this whole group? Are you seeing tweaks? If you're Jimmy Haslam, and I throw you into that seat, Come, you know, right now, I guess I tend to think it's probably not warranted to make huge changes. But let's say come the end of the season, um, you know, you can sort of forecast it depending on how these next six games go. But uh, in your in your mind, how does that how does that calculation process play out? I think you can salvage this. I think you can salvage the coaching staff. I think you can salvage the general manager, because, like I said, I think there is talent being assembled here but I think the way that Mike Patton and his staff have to really what they really need to focus on here and I think that the indication is they're getting there and and that is to play these early round picks um, I think uh, we saw Cam Irving have to play out of necessity and that didn't go well um, I have a lot of questions about that pick but I think, you know, Manziel, having to play Manziel and having to start him and having to commit to him, and now that he's in the clear with his whole NFL situation, that is is probably the best thing that could happen as far as salvaging Mike Pettin's job. And I'm still not sure it is enough. And um, I, I've written about this before, but Ray Farmer was actually promoted, I think, two weeks or three weeks after Mike Pettin was hired. And we know that there was a lot of problems with the hiring process last time. And uh, some and of the that time before trace, that, <laughs> right. and I think some of uh, that was uh, traced back to Joe Banner and, and Mike Lombardi kind of feuding amongst themselves. So I wonder if Ray Farmer is in Jimmy Haslam's ear, and I've wondered this for quite a while. I wonder if he's in Jimmy Haslam's ear, saying, "Hey, I didn't hire this guy. I was never given a chance to bring in a coach that I know and that I can work closely with, and this guy's just not playing team ball. If I had a guy who is more of a a team player, so to speak, as the coach, then maybe my players that I'm picking would be more successful. And I think Ray Farmer can point to some picks like Gilbert, like the running backs that have been picked, like um, maybe not all of them, not maybe not, (laughs) but, but he can point to some of these guys and say, Hey, I've given him this, this player that, that he wanted that fit his style and he's not making it work. Yeah, that is something that I worry about, and it's something I've worried about all season. By playing Manziel right now, if they can start, if they can get a spark these last few games, these last six games, it might be enough to get these guys feeling like they can work together, and maybe stop. I what I think is is kind of them going behind each other's back, and I think that's one reason why we've seen or we started to hear about them uh, giving a little bit more say-so to Alex Shiner 
the team president. Um, I think he's maybe Haslam is trying to put a stop to all of this internal bickering. And I'm just kind of speculating here. I don't really know, but that seems to be the the plan. Yeah. And maybe uh, by plan. Manziel and, and hopefully giving Gilbert another chance. I think that he does deserve some chances to play, especially considering that his his uh, defensive coordinator has said that he's been practicing well and doing what he needs to do to get on the field. I think it's time to let bygones be bygones and let's see if this guy can play. He was the eighth overall pick and they passed some really good talent to pick him. They sure did. And some of them are scoring a lot of touchdowns in the NFL. And, and right. th- those are things that the Browns could use. So, there's, there's really not, especially at this juncture in the season, being what it is. And, you know, Pettin's acknowledged as much that, that their record being what it is, it makes some sense to kind of turn into a, into a different mode for the remainder of the season. And it sounds like that's what they're going to do. And I, I agree with you. I think that's – I mean, it does set the table, number one, to find out if those guys can play. And, and number two, if they can play, well, it, it sort of helps crystallize in the decision-maker's mind, okay, well, what does that mean about the decisions we've seen made – or not made, as the case may be, and what does it mean about, um, you know, how successful exactly our general manager has been, and or our coach has been, or not, and so that to me is going to be kind of really interesting to see. I, I think there is some of what you're saying going on there. I mean, I think there's no way around that Petten had something to do, if not a lot to do, with the Justin Gilbert pick. And we know, because he and O'Neill both came in to their jobs saying it, that they loved Barkevius Mingo coming in. His wife made cupcakes or whatever it was. <laughs> and, and here they are not using him. And when they do use him, it's in sort of a limited, weird role. And, and so you do start to wonder kind of how exactly do you get to that place and is everybody on the same page? And I'm as firm a believer as there is in the football fan world that – you know, all those things that apply in sort of corporate America about management and the the alignment of an organization and all that stuff, it all plays big time in the NFL. you got to have everybody rowing the boat in the same direction, as it were, and if, it, if you don't, you're in deep trouble. But, but let me throw a monkey wrench into that analysis for you, because even if it's all chaotic, and even if it's all, you know, leaving something to be desired, if... And this is a big, you know, asterisky kind of if in capital, bold, underlined letters. But if we continue to see progression from Johnny Manziel along the lines of what we saw in Pittsburgh this past weekend over the course of the next six games, wouldn't you be a damned fool to go breaking up the environment that created that? Yeah, there's something to be said about that. And I think that's something that you would have to weigh really, really heavily because you'd have to analyze internally what kind of impact does John DeFilippo have with him, what kind of impact does uh, the quarterback coach who he worked with prior to uh, last season, I mean, what kind of coach or what kind of, you know, impact are those guys having? Or um, are they just letting Johnny kind of be free? And I, I don't think that's it. I think he's he's definitely shown more progress in the pocket and working through his progressions and things like that. And um, while Petten doesn't always seem a hundred percent pleased about that, the other coaches seem to be enthusiastic and Manziel to his credit seems to be more focused. I mean, I, I can't deny that this guy was a complete train wreck last year. And it's one of the biggest disappointments I've ever had as a, as a person who analyzes the draft because I loved his potential as a pro prospect and for him to get in and to just kind of 
just throw it away his first year. I don't know if he was pouting because he got beaten out or he wasn't an immediate starter like some of the peers. Yeah, see, I, I don't, I don't go for that angle. I just think you know, you, you know, you're not that far away from my age, and I hesitate to do that to you, but you're not. It, you know, it seems to me that we occasionally need to just recall that we're talking about a 21 year old dude who didn't even finish college, who enjoyed college, right? And you know suddenly stepping into what is one of the hardest jobs in the world without being really well equipped either from a professional or a personal standpoint to handle it. And so to me, I always thought no matter what, it was going to take this guy at least as long as it has taken now. And I probably thought, frankly, it was going to take longer to get him to where he is now, at least what we're seeing on the field. So I'm actually, I'm pretty buoyed by that. And I think, you know, when you look at that kind of progress, um, Number one, you got to credit the kid, obviously, because he's the only one that can do the work for him. But at the end of the day, if you like that kind of progress and you like the pace of the progress, to me, it's really hard to go saying, boy, sure seems like a good idea to bring in a whole bunch of new offensive coaches that are going to have a different system and a different way of saying the same things and, and a different way of working with him and no relationship with him. I mean, it seems to me that if you, if you get to the end of this season and Manziel has progressed, you kind of have to stick with it. If you get to the end of the season and he's been a joke for the next six games, I think all bets are off. Yeah, I agree with that because, it, well, here, if, if, he, uh, if he continues to progress like we saw on Sunday, then we have to figure they're going to win a couple of these games. You know, it's not going to yep. be they're – not, they're not necessarily going to be in that number one draft slot like they are going into the bye week. And that would be a good thing, in my opinion. Some people would view that as a bad thing, as hard as that is to believe, because they would say that they've played their way out of having a shot at the top quarterback. Well, yeah, but those opinion, people have already made up their minds on Manziel, right? Exactly, yeah. exactly. And in my opinion, the best thing they can do is play their way out of that, because that will mean they have a quarterback and they don't have to concentrate on that. And I know that might cost them Joey Bosa or some of these other really high-end picks, but to me, that's ideal. And that's also ideal because, like you said, then we can keep a coaching staff together and you can have something tangible to grab onto and say, see, this is why we have to keep this coaching staff here. This is why these coaches and these front office people have to work together. That would be the most positive thing that, that we could have. Um, I know it's tough to, to have optimism after he has – what I thought after Manziel has what I thought was a really good game, and they only score nine points. But I think we both know, and I think people that really look at the the circumstances, that it could have been more than that. There was a drop touchdown pass. There was a touchdown called back by a holding penalty. I saw some positives, and I, I think that can manifest into a couple wins here down the stretch in these last six games. If they can win three of these games, or maybe two right. and keep several others close. I think that you're on the right track. Yep. I mean, that's, that's sounds to me like we're, we're seeing it pretty similarly, even if we might, even if we might divvy up the responsibility for whatever's gone crappily so far, uh, slightly differently. I don't think it really matters because when you come back around to the end of it, it's, you've still got to figure out a way to get an entire organization going in the right direction. And there are enough signs, you know, to me, there are enough positive signs that all over the organization, that I'd be hesitant to make huge changes. I would, I would probably, if I'm Jimmy Haslam, I'm probably looking at Mike Pettin going, are you really going to force me to fire you over Jim O'Neill? And, and that's, probably where, <laughs> that's probably where I'm at on that. I mean, I, I look at the team, and, and it's either, it's either Pettin or O'Neill to me because you've got, 
those issues you're talking about in terms of the way guys are being used or not being used and the kinds of talent they've got that are being really misused, um, I mean, you got to put it on somebody, and there need to be either or, right? There needs to be A, very tangible, positive progress over the course of the next six games in that phase, or B, they're going to have to make some changes on the defensive side of the ball come January because you can't go into another season um, just having no idea how it's going to come out from a coaching standpoint on, on half your team. And, and, and so before we finish, that was a bit of a ramble, but before we finish, I wanted to ask you, because I know you do a lot of this work at Draft Breakdown, so you're, you're up at least to a much greater degree than I and, and a lot of the listeners on prospects and so on and so forth. Um, maybe categorize or characterize for me, if you would, from here, where you think the Browns, say, top two or three needs are going into the offseason. Um, you, can, you can make that QB dependent or not as you choose. And then sort of maybe some guys that you've seen in your, in your early study that, that you like as sort of fits and, and guys who might be Browns someday. Yeah, I, I will say that um, I still believe that Johnny Manziel can be a starting quarterback in the, in the NFL and a good starting quarterback. And the fact that he's only 22 years old and he's not, not t- uh, turning 23 until December – He's still younger than Cardale Jones, who is a, a player that a lot of Browns fans were eyeballing coming into this season. So <laughs> I'm, I'm going to guess we're not failing for Cardale anymore. Right. I mean, but let's put Johnny's age in, into perspective. He's he's a young guy, and he uh, has seemingly gotten better. So, like you said, I'll, I'll assume that we don't have to go quarterback. So let's talk about, um, I think, you know, if they were in a position to draft really early and get a Joey Bosa, that that's a player that I think could help any team, regardless of scheme. But I think that on defensive side of the ball, they really need to look at linebacker. Carlos Dansby is getting old. Um, well, he is old for, for an NFL player. Not for He's younger than I am. But, um, you know, they have Chris Kirksey. They don't have a lot of talent inside. I think a player like Darren Lee or... Um, I know some people like Miles Jack more than I do. Um, Jay, Jay I'm Lee certainly Smith. one of them as a UCLA right. lifer. <laughs> right. Yeah, I, I love Miles, but I can also see where there are. You know, he's to me, he's going to be kind of a specific player in the NFL, which doesn't mean, which doesn't necessarily mean a narrow role. But he's going to be a, the kind of guy where he needs to fit your team. And I'm, I'm not sure, at least based on the system the Browns are. Look, I think he's a good football player. I think he's a great athlete, and his instincts are are good. But I do, you know, there are things that you might ask him to do in certain systems that you wouldn't want him doing in others. And, and so I, th- I think it just kind of depends to me on, A, exactly where you slot him in, in in terms of round value, but also in terms of, you know, how does he fit your team. So I, I, I can see that either way for this team. To me, Darren Lee would be a really good fit as a linebacker because he gives them that coverage ability. He's also a good blitzer. Um, he plays the run really well. He makes a ton of plays at the line of scrimmage. And I think his versatility would free up a guy like Kruger to not have to ever drop back and maybe free up a guy like Mingo to rush the passer a little bit better. Some people think Mingo can be that type of player, but I have, I just feel like if Mingo was going to be that type of player, we'd already see it um, manifest by this time. And I think he needs to go back to what, what I think people loved in him, and that's rushing the passer and getting more opportunities. So Darren Lee's a guy, but that would be a player that would be available to them if they were to win a few games and kind of drop back. So I know everybody's thinking like, 
skill position, and wide receiver is a huge need for this team. I think you and I would both agree uh, the wide receiver play has been pretty bad, and it, it really has held them back in Manziel's two starts. So I think a player, if they're still going to be in that top 10 range, I like Laquan Treadwell more than some of the fantasy guys like him because I know they, they want a player who scored more touchdowns in conference play and things like that, but I think Treadwell has that capability. And he's used to playing with really bad quarterbacks at Ole Miss already. I love the size. I love the speed. The way he's come back from an injury that, that looked pretty ugly and years ago would have been career-threatening. And he's having a good year. And one of his biggest games of the year was against Alabama. And that team looks like the top, probably the best college team in the country right now, or at least they're playing to that level. So Treadwell's a guy. Um, Josh Doxson's. Uh, from TCU is another guy that that's good. Mike Thomas from Ohio State, a big receiver. They need a big receiver who can yeah. win jump balls, who can get contested catches. Man, this is one of those years where I'm not going to bitch about the Ohio State fans wanting some of their players on the team. You know, this is a perfect year for Ohio State fans to want some of the players because there's a lot of them that fit what the Browns need. Lee Von Bell at safety. Um, like I said, uh, Mike Thomas. So there's a lot of good Taylor Decker. If they if they uh, if he falls into the second round and they want to go offensive line again, to me that's not a big need. If they can re-sign Mitchell Schwartz, and um, even if Mac leaves, you've got Cam Irving who I think can play center at a pretty high level. It's guard that he's struggling at. Yeah, I think but he'll I, be okay at center. Actually, I, th- I saw some and I saw some things this weekend even with him. Where look, he's going to miss some things. He's young, he's raw, but you got to love right. the aggressiveness he plays with, the way he finishes the blocks that he gets on. I, there's a lot to build on there. I mean, look, you got to go back and look at some young, raw, athletic rookie offensive linemen. Uh, even a guy like like Tyron Smith, for example, down in Dallas, who's now become one of the great you know left tackles in the game. I mean, he was a pretty raw dude coming out of USC, and it took him a while to catch his feet. And so I'm not, I'm not suggesting that that's who Cam Irving's going to be, but I'm suggesting that it's a tad early to go worrying about a couple of vines in the middle of his rookie year. Right, and I think people need to understand with Cam Irving, he started his college career as a defensive lineman. Then he moved to offensive tackle, and as a junior, he actually played left tackle at a pretty good level. He was All-American. People, <laughs> yeah, people had high hopes for him. And then he started um, – off really poorly and had to move to center because of injury and he played center a position he'd never played at a high level a high enough level I thought he was a first round caliber center I questioned the pick when the Browns made that pick because they still had Alex Mack and it was almost like they're giving the assumption that Mack's going to leave well now we see they wanted to use Irving as a Swiss army knife offensive lineman which I'm not sure what that does for his development but like you said he's a talented guy and I think we need to all give him some time to breathe. Um, R E L A X. Yeah, right. He's playing his like fourth different position right. in five years. So, and I think, like you said, there are, are some good vines out there. Yeah, and I'm well, he's a good enough athlete to be asked to do that. That's a big deal to start with. Yeah, and you can see Petten's frustration. I think yeah. a lot of people saw that that gif of him the whole thing uh the f word about cam irving but um you know mike Patton. if he's going to be around cam irving is a guy that he's going to count on next year no doubt so um i don't think offensive line's a big need my my big needs are linebacker and uh skill positions receiver and, and probably running back because as much as i'd like duke johnson 
it's pretty clear that they don't think he's a, a big enough guy to take a pounding and be that bell cow. And we actually heard Wilbur Montgomery say in an interview earlier today, we're taping this on Wednesday, that uh, they don't have a bell cow. And yeah. to hear the running back coach say that, I think it's a big deal. So that well, running back he, might be something. Duke, Duke's been relatively ineffective in the in the pass protection portion of the game, too. I mean, he's, he's a phenomenal receiver, but, you know, you look at the, the numbers, at least by people I trust, and, and he's not doing a great job there. So that's probably part of it, too, right? I mean, if especially yeah. if you're moving to a Johnny Manziel, you better have people that know what they're doing around him. Yeah, he actually, Duke got blown up by a guy that I love, Ryan Shazier. Yeah. He's finally coming into his own. I know it's for Pittsburgh, and we're not supposed to acknowledge that. But um, <laughs> but I think a, a player like Ezekiel Elliott, who is a phenomenal blocker as well as a phenomenal running back, would be a great addition to the Browns. But I don't know that they're going to be picking in the range where he's going to be drafted, which I think is going to be the mid to late first round. So a guy they could look at is a player who's really divisive on Twitter and in the draft community, that's Derrick Henry. I think he's a really good running back. Imagine. (laughs) Yeah, I know. People would go nuts because he is so divisive. Some people think he's uh, needs – I know Matt Miller from Bleacher Report said he needs to be a fullback. Um, other Other people say that he's a guy who can be a bell cow running back. I'm in that camp. I think Derrick Henry's a terrific player. He's putting together a Heisman caliber season. He's a good receiver, and he's a really, really good pass protector, which you will see out of Alabama running backs. But, of course – Yeah, but you probably be... liked Trent Richardson, didn't right. you, Justin? <laughs> I did. I did. But I, I've actually we all did. <laughs> I've learned a lesson from Trent Richardson. Um, and that was – there were certain things about him, and our, our buddy Brendan Leister pointed this out to me. The year after after Richardson's rookie year, when he ran, he kind of had his legs splayed out, out from under him, and he wasn't really running square. And I think that's something that's really influenced the way I, I evaluate running backs, and that's not a problem with Derrick Henry. We need to we need to throw out this this stigma of Alabama running backs. We need I to realize that so. actually yeah, <laughs> actually Trent Richardson is is the only one that isn't having a good career right now or hasn't had his good moments. Lacey is struggling now, but he did have a couple good years. Uh, Mark Ingram came into his own later, and I think Henry's a player who's going to be a, at least give you three, four, five good years for a running back. If you're talking second or third round, that's that's a really good pick. Yeah, and I think this is going to be a deep year for running backs, so even if it's not Henry, there are going to be a group of guys that – that the Browns can select from. So I appreciate that, and I do think that they, frankly, it's still a need. I mean, Crow yeah. is clearly not going to be the guy. I mean, he, I, I think Crow is a guy that the more carries you give him, the more product, productive he might be because he'll wear on you. But he's not hes not electric the way you expect a number one, you know, a true bell cow back to be. He's a hes an attrition back, which is all fine and good, but – that's not you have really, to be winning. Yeah, really right. Use a guy like that, right? Right. He's real useful in the fourth quarter, but only if you're up. So, um, yeah, they, that's not the guy. They, and then, frankly, that doesn't appear to be the kind of offense they're attempting to build, if we're being real about it. It's what they were talking about. But I think what we've seen so far is they've probably got some of the pieces to be pretty explosive. 
And so yeah. they need to add a couple of legit big-time dynamic playmakers to that, and now suddenly you're dealing with an offense people have to be worried about. And it would sure help, of course, if one Mr. Gordon were to be able to get off the sidelines, but we will just pray for that and not expect it in the interim. Um, last thing before we go, and uh, I've taken up a ton of your time as it is, but before we go, I just kind of want to get your sense of what you're hoping to get aside from Manziel progress, or maybe you can define what – acceptable Manziel progress would look like, but what are you hoping to get out of the last six games of the season from the 2015 Browns? Well, I'd like to see if I'd like to see them continue to get the ball to Travis Benjamin, because I want to see if, if is he a late bloomer? Um, that ACL injury appears to have stunted his growth for a year and a half. And now he seems to be the player that I think Tom Hackard envisioned when he drafted him. And they really praised him as a receiver and as a return guy. I think Travis Benjamin has been a revelation this year. And even if Josh Gordon doesn't come back, you've got if if you can show that Travis Benjamin is what he's looked like up to this point, then you have another outside receiver. Then if you draft another one high, you've got those two outside receivers. And I really like what he's done. I want to see if uh, Gary Barnage is a guy that's worth re-signing because he's 30 years old. So you're kind of at that, it's that like no man's land for a guy that age that's heading into free agency. Do you really want to invest in him? Are you sure that? Oh, I do. I I I do too. I think they need him and I think they need more at that position. Yeah. They definitely do because now Hausler's been released. They've got Jim Dre. Let's see EJ Bibbs. Is EJ Bibbs a guy that they can play into the future? They've got to get him on some active rosters. Um, I guess the ship has sailed on Dwayne Bowe. I want to see him cut because if they're not going to play him, if if front office and coaching staff can't agree, cut Dwayne Bowe, maybe try and sign a young receiver off a practice squad because I was uh, a guy I liked was Trey McBride. The Titans just promoted him, so that ship has sailed. So maybe there's another guy out there they can promote, um, sign on, and see if that can take them into the future. And um, – Otherwise, I just want to see – I'd like to see Duke Johnson get more playing time. Montgomery, I referenced him earlier. He kind of threw that on on flip and said, hey, um, why is Duke Johnson not getting snaps? You're going to have to ask Flip. So let's, let's ask Flip. Get Duke Johnson some more carries, some more receptions in the second half and really see if he's a player they can build on. For all the criticism I've lashed out at Petten, he has always been – high on Duke Johnson and I think he deserves a chance to see Duke Johnson play so um and and lastly I just want to see uh Justin Gilbert get on the field and I I think it's really important to know before you throw away an eighth overall pick it's really important to know if that guy's a bust or not and I don't think it's fair to say that he is because of a few poor performances early last season because I I think um he has actually played at a decent level and certainly at, at a level that suggests he should be playing ahead of Johnson Batamosi. Yeah, no question about that. I mean, frankly, I should be playing ahead of Johnson Batamosi. <laughs> and that's no shade on Johnson. He's a good dude and a hell of a special teams player and a smart guy, but he should not be out there matched up against Antonio Brown. I think we can all agree with that. But at, at any rate, Justin, I've really enjoyed it, man. That is Justin Higdon. Please follow him at AFC2. NFC, and that too is the number two. You can find him at Draft Breakdown. He works uh, on the cutups. He works on uh, some articles. He definitely does the podcast, which I believe I heard him say. Tell me again, Justin, you guys are maybe doing one right before Thanksgiving? 
We're hoping to do one um, next Monday or next Tuesday before Thanksgiving. So we want to kind of preview that last couple of games before the uh, conference play or before the conference championship games, and then heading into that college football playoff selection. There you go. So by all means, if you're not familiar with Draft Breakdown, number one, you're way behind the game. But check Justin out there. You can find him also at Browns Beat. And like I said, the Twitter handle is AFC, the number two NFC. Justin, really appreciate you joining me from Chicago tonight, man. Hope you're, uh, hope you're having a good rest of the week and uh, enjoy your new parenthood duties. It's my pleasure talking to you and uh, my pleasure with my new parenthood duties. It's <laughs> It's, uh, you know, as you can imagine, it's a uh, rocky first couple of weeks, but I'm having a blast. Well, best wishes from us to all of you uh, in Chicago, and uh, we'll talk to you again soon, man. Be well. Thanks, sir. All right. Excited to be joined again by our friend and pseudo-regular guest these days, uh, Mr. Pete Smith, joining us from Ohio this evening, and we're going to talk big picture Browns stuff and a little bit of quarterback, a little bit of organizational philosophy and management. Uh, we're going to talk Browns and hopefully uh, I think we're going to have Pete given the uh, the case for why you should A, maybe be a little bit more optimistic than you are if you're one of those folks that's ready to throw everybody to the wind, but B, uh, some actual concrete observations about the season and and where things are and and what I would like to call, I guess, gentle perspective, because I I feel like there's, my view is there's a little too much, uh, a little too much hastiness and impatience. And though it's understandable, it's not necessarily the course um, best advisable for a football organization. So Pete, with that as the introduction to the entire conversation, it's good to have you, man. How's it going? Uh, good, good, better than they are, I suppose. Yeah, much better. And well, so let's just, let's dive into the article that you, you had up this morning, um, at the, at the NFL spin zone. And it's about, it, it's a, it's a broad piece. It covers all sorts of things, but the, the sort of underlying thrust of it is what I was just talking about. It's look, there are things to take out of what's going on as bad as we are willing to acknowledge certain things have been, um, that, lends itself more to tweaking than it does to a vast organizational overhaul. Is that a fair way to put it? Right. So, like, the first thing I would say is, and get it out of the way, is I can't defend, nor do I want to defend Jim O'Neill. I am as uh, aggressive in wanting to see him replaced at the end of the season as anybody and and there's a lot of problems that go with him. If Patton ultimately gets to a point where he says, look, if Jim O'Neill, if Jim O'Neill goes, I'm going, then, you know, all this is a waste of time because I just can't defend what he's doing. But from a larger perspective in terms of what you're you're hoping for from an organization and, and the amount of coaches they brought in and everything that goes with that, I like what they have, and I'd hate to sort of blow it up uh, just because they're losing. Don't get me wrong, losing sucks. It's not fun, and everything goes along with it. But at the same time, you're sort of looking at, at this team, and when these guys were hired, you hired a young coaching staff uh, that that was basically as unfinished as some of the draft picks they, they got. So you were sort of needing to sort of understand that there were going to be some growing pains, and there have been the whole uh, Shanahan fiasco and everything that went with that, leading into to, you know John DeFilippo, who I like a great deal. Uh, but he's a very young coordinator. This actually is only his second uh, season in his career uh, as uh, 
being a coach as a coordinator. Uh, the only other time he did it was as an offensive coordinator for San Jose State uh, in 2011. So he, this is really it for him. So, you know, there's a lot for him to learn. There's a lot for sort of petting to learn and get better at, and, and you know, knowing when to sort of step in and, and improve uh, things when he needs to and not sort of let uh, this thing potentially go out of control, especially with defensively and, and some of the things that are being done and, and things like that. Uh, from a player standpoint, the thing that drives me the most nuts is, you know, they have uh, 14 players under the age of 27. They're all 26 and under contributing on this defense. And one of the complaints I always get is, why aren't they playing the young guys? Well, they are. And they're playing actually a lot more than people think they are but they're just convinced because they see some of these guys who are older playing that these young guys aren't, and, and it's just not true. And some of these guys are making a great bit of progress, and, and you like to see what they're doing, and then the overall product is just yeah. not sort of representative of what you're seeing, which, let, which let makes me, it frustrating. Let me cut in there because I, I, I agree with you on this. I, you know, it seems to me that a, an inordinate amount of that why don't they play young guys stuff comes out of – you know, Manziel on one side of the ball and Gilbert on the other side of the ball. I mean, to me, that's really where that comes from. It's sort of an, it's sort of an oversimplified view of things because they got people on the defensive side of the ball. Like, how many people did you say under twenty six? It was. I mean, it's more than ten. So it, it's four, fourteen players who are not just. This is not just on the roster. These are guys who are actually on defense contributing. I didn't even include Gilbert in this number. Yeah, I didn't so include Johnson Batamosi <laughs> in this number. I'm including just the guys who are actually playing on defense who I think are guys who contribute. I didn't include Charles Gaines. I didn't include some of these other guys that you know that, that may or may not have a future. I'm just talking about guys who are getting reps. Guys like you know Danny Shelton, guys like Barkevius Mingo, guys like Chris Kirksey, guys like Pierre Desir, Ibrahim Campbell. Believe it or not, Joe Hayden is still just 26 years old, uh, which is sort of a, a forgotten thing. Deshaun Gibson is young. I mean, they've got a lot of very young players who are getting a lot of reps. Jamie Meter's a young guy, uh, 24. I mean, these there's just a lot of guys, and you're sort of people are sort of very frustrated because Danny Shelton's not an out and out stud, and uh, that's that's fine. But my my retort with that is always, who are the guys in this draft class that are just killing it right now? And, well, and you know, and the I'll, people I'll who are picking out random guys are struggling. Let me let me add to that. Come up with names. Who I mean, and who are the guys that walk into the league playing nose tackle and dominating? I mean, it's just not going to happen. There's just too much to learn. You're playing against big men with grown men's strength and a grown man's understanding of his profession and his technique, and you're not just going to walk in and dominate. It's just never going to happen. So to me, you don't judge a pick like Danny Shelton ten games into his career. And the other part of this, and and the other thing I've sort of run into in, in my in my as people who follow me know, I like to interact, and I like to you know talk to people on Twitter. So these people, uh, much to the chagrin of some and hilarity of others, uh, you'd be surprised who laughs at my timeline. Uh, but the uh, so like you talk to somebody, and you're like, I want to fire Mike Patton, and you're like, okay, are you good to go on giving up on Jan- Johnny Manziel? And they're like, no. Well. If if you fire the head coach, you know the new head coach may not want Manziel to be in a third coordinator. This, that, and the other thing, and then they come back with, well, Jimmy Haslam's gonna would hire somebody who is going to Manziel coordinator. So you've already cut down your yeah, potential. Ask, ask RG three how that works out. 
<laughs> yeah, you already cut down your, your, your crop of candidates by a, a, a section right there. Let's say that guy then doesn't run a, you know, a true nose defensive tackle scheme on defense. Are you ready to give up on Danny Shelton? And the answer inevitably comes back, well, no. So what you're really complaining about is you don't really want to change coaches uh, the whole thing. You just want what they have to get better. And I'm right there with you. I understand. But you, it's not like you know a situation where you can just, well, switch head coaches and all these guys will magically get better. Some guys just... Which we should know by now. They're on that. You as- think you... All right, we're back. We had a little bit of a connection issue, so we're going to try and get back into somewhere vaguely near where that stuff started to happen. Um, Pete, you were you were talking about the practical realities of what happens if they have to fire somebody, or if they were to decide to fire Petten, and what that means in terms of maybe having to give up on Shelton, maybe having to give up on Menzel, depending on who's coming in. Um, if you're demanding that the new coach be uh, okay with Manziel, well, then you've sliced off a big chunk of the pie, presumably, of prospective candidates to begin with. And then you've got issues in terms of personnel fits and and all that stuff that comes with firing. And you and I sort of said, well, shouldn't Browns fans, we should know this by now, right? And so that's about where it started to get choppy. Why don't you take it from wherever you were? But there were some good things coming out from what I could discern. So go for it. It's just one of those things where you, you, you talk to people and, and they tell you, well, they, they want to get rid of the coaching staff, and then you basically go, well, are you done with Johnny Manziel? And they go, no. That, you know, and you're saying, well, the new head coach might not want him, may not, may not believe in him, and they're going to have a top pick. They may want their own guy. And then, you're, then I get, they come back and they're like, well, Haslam will make sure they hire a guy who, who, who would start Manziel. And you're already cutting down your candidate field down, making demands, and making what most people think is arguably the least attractive job even less attractive. And then the other side of the ball, if they don't want to run a an odd front, Danny Shelton's sort of a, a fish out of water uh, at, a, at a different position. He's a true nose in every sense of the word. And if you're then saying, well, we're going to run a scheme that doesn't really use a true nose, now you're all of a sudden trying to trade Danny Shelton and you're not going to get that pick back. You're not going to get Manziel's pick back. So for people who are very frustrated with the four first-round picks uh, that, that aren't producing like they like they want them to right away, uh, that doesn't help your cause. You're basically you're throwing them out before they have a chance to get get where they need to. Now with a guy like Manziel, I can certainly understand where people are less inclined to sort of believe he can be that guy. They can't rely on him or or don't trust him for all the various off-field issues. I understand that, but he is sort of progressing and you sort of like what you're seeing and and i would even if they ultimately decide to draft another quarterback which i think they probably should uh, i wouldn't give up on manzel uh both for him his own situation and the fact that he does have talent there's no real reason to throw it away and i'd rather have two swings at sort of finding a franchise quarterback than just the one uh with a guy like sheldon he's a rookie uh, you bought, brought this guy in specifically for the scheme, and if they decide not to run the scheme, all of a sudden you're trying to get get something for him, and you're getting almost you're getting pennies on the dollar. It's just not a smart use of your your draft picks. I understand that that people want to get impact out of these picks, but at the same time, just looking at this rookie class, it's not really there. Outside of a few outliers, for the most part, this draft is just not had that instant impact. It's going to be a little bit of a slow burn, and you've got to sort of understand that and, and, and ride with it a little bit. Now, these guys have to get better, and there's obvious holes 
and flaws they've got to work on, but they, they, you can't just immediately quit on these guys at, with less than a year. I mean, this hasn't even been, we're not even at the end of the year. We're, we're at the bye week, and, and some of these rumblings have been going since basically the halfway point. Yeah, that's really my problem with it is the whole thing just feels hasty to me. And so, you know, I guess the question I have about the defense as we look at it on the whole for the course of the, you know, the first 10 games of the season is, I mean, this seems to be a pretty specific and consistent lament. And it goes something like the following. Everybody's either in a bad position or they're using, not not everybody's in a bad position, but they're using a lot of guys sort of contrary to their best skills. They aren't using certain guys who are better players enough. Mingo obviously comes to the forefront of most people's minds in that category. Kruger dropping back. I mean, a world in which Armani Bryant is somehow attempting to cover a Pittsburgh wide receiver, or I mean a, a Cincinnati wide receiver like Marvin Jones across the middle. How does Johnson Batamosi get singled up on Antonio Brown? All these things. It comes down to personnel usage on the defensive side of the ball because most of it, I mean, we've talked about it sort of ad nauseum on the, on this podcast here, is that, you know, and, and Petten said as much the other day, they can put together all these reels of them playing really well, but you and I know that's all fine and good until you're giving up three or four big plays a game and it costs you the football game. So from a defensive standpoint, kind of tell me what you think the strengths, if any, and weaknesses have been so far and if there's any way to really address it, uh, you know, over the course of the last six games. Well, the, the reality is the strength of this defense is the corner position. The problem is they keep putting in these positions to lose. Uh, the, the fact that the amount of times I see cover zero – where you have these corners on an island because they're trying to make up for a pass rush they don't have right. is infuriating. Which I mean, is one thing you, when it's you Joe brought Hayden. up the ultimate example, which is you have cover zero, you have Johnson Batamosi in the slot against Antonio Brown. You didn't, you didn't even have to – the ball didn't even get snapped. You are already thinking this is bad. And nothing good can come from this. And not a huge surprise, 56 yards later or whatever it was, Antonio Brown's in the end zone. That's just not good defense. Or, or Charles Gaines being on an island. Or, you know, even Pierre Desir. I mean, in the early going, you saw the first one, one play where they had a nice job of Desir underneath and Tayshawn Gibson over the top. That's the type of defense you want to see. Use the safeties for what they're good for. Both Poyer and Gibson are better floating around than trying to press up and, and either blitz or play main coverage. You're just... Charles Gaines against Martavis Bryant, you're just going scratching your head going, who thought this was a potentially winning winning uh, option for them? So from that standpoint, it's just that's just bad football, and there's, there's no way to defend it. The stuff that you like to see is I th- you like to see that Danny Shelton get, getting better. Granted, it was against a backup Pittsburgh Steelers center, but he was better. There's no debating the fact that he may have had his best game as a pro. Uh, you, you'll take that every time. Uh, Nate Orchard probably had his best game as a pro. Uh, he had a, a couple of nice plays. And then, as frustrated as I am with the usage of Barkevius Mingo, he is their best outside backing run stopper. He can play in coverage. And then this past week, you saw him making an impact to the pass rusher. He's showing you everything you could want. He had a sack on Roethlisberger. He got that free punch to the head on Roethlisberger because they had a penalty elsewhere couple hurries. Uh, so, I mean, you, you see him literally doing all the things you could want out of him, and they just need to trust him and sort of go with it. I'm, I'm happy that playing Orchard to the extent that he needs to get reps and he is progressing, and I'm hoping that some of these guys 
coming out of the bye week, some, especially some of these young guys, will come out and, and sort of be almost almost playing downhill a little bit, a little more comfortable with it where they're at. And the game's not going quite as fast. They're sort of just getting comfortable with it. But there's a lot of young players that individually just assignment football, you really like what they have. You just need somebody to come in uh, and either work with Patton or some sort of melding of philosophies where they can put this defense in position to succeed. Uh, to me, the scheme as a whole makes a lot of sense. How they're actually employing it is infuriating, and they don't have a pass rush. Their run defense is getting better, but it's just wildly inconsistent, and it just comes back to that whole issue of big plays. And then the, the corners can do stuff, but you, you just can't leave these guys out to dry. And so some of these corners are getting crushed by critics, and then you're going, well, he's never going to win that battle. He shouldn't be in that situation. So there's a lot of things that just leave you with your head head scratching, and then, you know, but you see guys who are there. You see guys who want to make this work. You see a lot of effort. The thing I, the thing I occasionally still see, which drives me nuts, is the idea that some of these people are accusing the Browns players of quitting or they're lazy or whatever. They're killing themselves as much as they can. They want to win. Uh, they just need to get put in the right positions and, and, and do it. Yeah, and you know, it seems to me that there's been, here's one of the issues I have. You talk about the usage of people, and I, I, we have very similar concerns in that regard. It, it occurs to me that there's been a total failure to adjust to the loss of Joe Hayden. I mean, you can't, you can't play your defense the same way without your best corner. You just can't do it. And so there, when you get overly aggressive, um, I, I mean, you could just tell, I mean, watching Roethlisberger this weekend, it was just like he kept saying to himself, you guys really are going to keep running this man-on-man coverage against Martavis Bryant and Antonio Brown out here on the outside? I'm just going to keep throwing it up. And damned if it didn't work pretty well in the form of penalties and receptions and touchdowns. And to me, that's that's what I don't get is I, I, the scheme is obviously, to me, not the problem. It's had plenty of success in a lot of places. So part of it is personnel. But part of it is how the you know the personnel is being used. You said something in that last response that I wanted to kind of ask you one more follow up on. You said the scheme itself to you makes a lot of sense, but the way they're employing it doesn't. Are you talking mostly about that personnel usage, or is there sort of a, a conceptual problem there? The overall scheme is just is is a three man line with a with a, a five technique. Uh, sort of outside the tackle, a zero technique right up over the center, and then a three technique uh, in between the guard and the tackle. And then outside of that, that three technique is a nine technique, which is their stand-up end or what they call a rush. Uh, That, with uh, with three linebackers in sort of logical positions and and the fact that they play a man-cover scheme for the most part, makes a ton of sense to me. There's a lot of things you can do with it. There's a lot of ways you can sort of change it up and, and, and give different looks without getting crazy. You can obviously sub-package out of it. You can do a lot of things. And if the, and if the guy sneezes and he puts his hand on the ground, you have, you have a 4-3 that everybody keeps talking about as some magical fix. So the, you have a lot of versatility. You have a lot of options there. In terms of what's happening after the snap, what guys are being called upon to do, that's the stuff that drives me nuts, and that's the stuff where you're sort of losing me. And you had Tremont Williams, who I have heard uh, from from players has been a godsend in this organization in terms of he's the quotes you were talking about where he's got to let players play, they're going to do everything they can type stuff. 
he's sending a direct message, and I wrote about this earlier in the week. He's been an advocate as much as a a sort of a a vet leadership guy. He's 32. He's on the, he's getting paid real well. He doesn't need to fight this battle. He can perfectly perfectly content to run off ride off into the sunset with what he's making. What he's doing is he's trying to stand up for these young guys. Uh, like the Pierre Desirs, like the K1 Williams, and, and some of the things that I've heard about are going on behind the scenes. And he's trying to prod some action out of this. It's a direct shot at Jim O'Neill and pleading with G- basically Mike Pettin, who I, from what I am told, all the players like and support. Now they may be waning in sort of that because they think he's you know too comfortable with O'Neill and everything that's going on there. But everybody I've talked to and and, and had had uh, or gotten con- contacts through has told me they like Mike Pettin. They like the way he works. They like the way he sort of uh, demands uh, people earn their way. They all love it. They know what to expect and all that type of stuff. But some of the stuff you hear with O'Neill is what terrifies you and you just think he's not qualified. He's a little bit uh, unsure of himself. He's got some ego issues and then he's just insecure with what he's doing and, and rides mean, so certain obvious. guys too hard. It's so obvious when he's like, on. You when mentioned on. Joe Hayden. Yeah. Go ahead. Joe Hayden's a situation where where he's really, really in love with Joe Hayden to the point where in the one game where he, he got the concussion, he looked like he was maybe 40% out there. He just wasn't Joe Hayden, but they still put him out there, and it was just embarrassing. He could not play but because he's Joe Hayden. And some of that, there's an understandable head coach trying to trust his impact guy. There's, there's an element of that, but it was not – very long into the game where you knew he's just not himself, he's not healthy, he's not right, they need to get him out. Unfortunately, it took a concussion for that to happen. But that's the stuff where you're sort of like, what What are they doing? And, and even the fan you know, down at the bar has a good sense of, man, this isn't right. And the thing that's unfair, in my mind, is everybody's sort of going, well, Joe Hayden sucks. Well, he doesn't suck. He's just, this, is a, this has been nothing short of a lost year for him with injuries and everything. He's, going, he's a great corner. He's a big part of what they want to do. This just isn't the year. This isn't his year, and it's going to happen. And injuries suck. And you've had this with Tayshawn Gibson, some of these other things. But as you mentioned, now you got to adjust over that. You don't have that lockdown corner. And I really like Pierre Desir, but give him some help. Tayshawn Gibson, that's what he does. Jordan Poyer, that's what he does. If you want to, you know, have more of a run supporter, Ibrahim Campbell's there. You have these guys that are sort of naturally fit. And you talk about like Armani Bryant and a receiver. I understand this makes sense when you draw it up and the X can cover the O really well, but when it's in practical use, it just doesn't work. And they're not seeing, somebody's not seeing that or correcting it. And it just, it's not working. You have players that are frustrated. It's not as bad as it seems in terms of like how people are playing it up, but it's not good. It's not what you want to have. The thing that scares you isn't that these guys are talking. It's if they stop. Because that right. means they've basically given up on it. And they, the fact that they, they are engaged, they want support, they are trying to prod for, for something to get changed. They, like I said, they do believe in what's going on. It's, it's my, and I, I've been sort of railing on this, you know, he wants, you know, the kind of flesh and firing Jim O'Neill, and I understand that, but he's not going to die. And I don't have a problem with that, but at the same time, you can sort of mute his impact on the game or, you know, make some, make some calls, power you know, additional coaches and stuff like that because they're getting some wires crossed and some of their own frustrations. So it's a big, big problem, and, and the pro- it's a small problem that has ballooned into a very big one, and it looks worse than it really is. 
but it's not good. Yeah, you know, a lot of really key points in there, and, and I know just listening to it that we, we share some views about sort of how organizations have to be uh, in terms of alignment and in terms of, uh, you know, <laughs> if you don't have buy-in on the on both sides of the ball, if you don't have buy-in from veterans and young people, I mean, that's that to me is the trickier part of, of rebuilding a, a moribund franchise. That's, to me, the stuff you have to establish – and uh, and get right before the stuff on the field can really get consistently better for any sustainable amount of time because I, it, it's that stuff to me that leads to good decision making to good personnel fits and all that stuff. I, I just think it all springs from sort of sound organizational and management philosophy and and so it's it's going to be really interesting to see sort of which shoulder. Uh, Jimmy Haslam is listening to more attently when the season ends is the devil or the angel. It'll be, it'll be interesting to see. Um, How about, and you know, I want to wrap that defensive side discussion up with just sort of, you you talked about O'Neal being sort of insecure. I mean, to me, that plays really obviously when you see him doing press conferences and getting asked very direct, simple questions and either attempting to just, brush them off or becoming visibly like defensively upset or uh, just making up some nonsense, nonsense excuse that we can all read right through. And it's like, all right, I don't get that from Petten and I don't get that from uh, flip at all. I get those two guys up there and they're just, I mean, they're talking to me the way they would talk to people and they're going about it in a professional manner. And it's all very matter of fact and it's, here's what's going on, here's what we need to do better. Now, are they going to tell you every little detail and give you their heart's, uh, you know, most honest truth at every moment? No, but that's not part of the job description, best I can tell. Uh, the job is to get things done on the football field, and, and I really do, from those other two guys, I get a firm managerial sense. Like, I have little doubt that Filippo is going to be a head coach someday. And so, to me, um, the idea of breaking this all up is a little uncomfortable. Uh, for all the reasons that you've gotten into. But but perhaps the biggest one to me is something that you've also written about at length and I know we agree at com- agree upon completely is it sure looks like the offensive staff knows exactly what they're doing with quarterbacks. And if you like at all what you're getting out of Johnny Manziel right now and you want at all to see if he could be the guy in 2016, if those possibilities are even of remote interest to you, you better pray to whatever you believe in that John Filippo is around and that requires Mike Pettin being around, right? Absolutely. There, there's what's happening with Manziel. Obviously, Manziel himself gets a lot. You can't quarterback. They've got to actually do the work. And by all accounts, when he's in the building, when he's there, he's an absolute machine as far as, as doing what, they're, what they want him to do and, and putting in the work, uh, which is exactly what everybody was hoping they'd get from him when he came out. This was, you know, he, he was supposed to be the burning candle at both ends guy. He more sense of that now. Uh, Mike Patton deserves, a, a, in my opinion, a, fan, a huge amount of credit for the situation. He's been hired. Whether it was Hoyer last year, and now, man, all these people have been up in arms about how they handle Manziel. When it, when it gets down to it, McCown has been an absolute gem of a professional athlete in Cleveland. He's been extremely productive. He's been better than anybody thought he would be. He's like an extra coach in there. He desperately wants this kid to succeed. He's totally invested. There's not a sense 
by anyone that he's fake about it. Even when they handed the starting job to him, he was like, man, I hope this kid's successful. And you just, there's nothing but good feelings for me as far as McCown is concerned. At the same time, Mike Pettin's temperament, which is another thing I think works in his favor that sort of gets lost in this. Uh, and the fact that he sort of wanted to be tough on Manziel and make him prove it. Well, look what he's gotten out of him. He's gotten a guy that's really worked hard. Manziel's had his share of frustrations. Like he thought he should start after the Tennessee game. Mike Pettin rightly said, you weren't ready. He wasn't ready. Uh, and then he got to the Bengals game. He was better, but he wasn't great by any stretch. He was actually pretty poor in this game for the most part once you got to the actual real tape of it. And they and, and Mike Pettin got crushed for, for, the, for talking at the halftime about he needs to stay in the pocket and all these other things. And then, you know, all these people got in this huge kerfuffle over this. And then the real analysts came and they're like, he's absolutely right. This is what should happen. And then Manziel gets in there for Pittsburgh and suddenly he's operating in the pocket. He's doing everything Pettin was talking about. He's doing all these things the right way. He's making these reads. Uh, there was one situation where, you know, it was frustrating because Pittsburgh was just teeing off on the run. You're like, man, he, he needs to check to a quick pass. Uh, and then you saw in the, I think it was the second half, early part of it, he sees, uh, he sees a blitzer coming. He checks. He immediately does a quick pass to Gary Barnage, and it was a thing of beauty. That stuff, you get genuine growth you're excited about. And that's where you get the flip. And by all accounts, anybody I've talked to says, John DiFilippo is a rising star. He's extremely raw as a coach. You see that with the running game, and, and some of that's the loss of Andy Moeller, which is an under, a under-discussed fiasco that went on with this team, and one that doesn't really look well at Patton, but ultimately it does not help you when the most important positional assistant is done basically you know, 20 minutes into the season. That's, you know, it's a really big problem. But you see him sort of figuring things out. He's very good at when it comes to game planning, when it comes to running a script, but you still to see the rawness in terms of some people see him getting a little predictable. Uh, some of the, some of the ways he, he hasn't been able to sort of figure out how to get the run going the right way, but in terms of designing pass plays, designing the offense around each quarterback, he's been great at that. He's a great teacher in that respect. And the thing that scares me when it comes to, when it comes to him is if you fire Patton, he's going to end up at somewhere like New England and replace a guy who leaves like Josh McDaniels to get a head coaching job. And then suddenly, you know, a couple of years later, you've got this guy who's an absolute star some other place and you're sitting there going, man, why did we get rid of him? Well, you're seeing it. He's there. About a week and a half ago, I had a chance to uh, talk to an offensive player uh, and, and I just sort of asked his general things. I actually went in trying to get a sense of what he thought of Petten and, and the staff in general. And unprompted, a non-quarterback, talked about how much he thought Kevin O'Connell was a star. That's the quarterback's coach, uh, and he's, he's a guy who's getting rave reviews from guys who don't play his position uh, and don't deal with him in meetings or anything, thinking he's a star. And then you, you flesh it out, you find out, well, Manziel, this has been Manziel's guy, that Kevin O'Connell's been huge, his confidant, his go-to, this has been his guy. So, you know, everybody gets frustrated when you hammer this sort of well, he went to rehab, he's battling these demons and, and all these things. And you, But at some point, you're, you're going, this guy seems to be, gen, this guy, these, this staff, these guys in general, seem to be genuinely good for him as a human being. And even if you don't believe in him sort of as the franchise quarterback, for his own sake and then the talent he does have, he, to me, he seems worth holding on to in all these guys. So 
right now you have a head coach with the right temperament on handle, how to handle quarterbacks, and he's got two assistants in-house. They're both uh, former – one is a for, former quarterback's coach turned offensive coordinator who seems to really know how to scheme around the quarterback, and the other guy is just a fantastic quarterback's teacher. So whether you believe in Manziel, and if you believe in Manziel, you should hope these guys stick around, or you're looking ahead and you're going, man, I really like Paxton Lynch – to me, if you're trying to turn around this team, you're looking at it from the quarterback position. How better set up are you than to take these guys who seem to be stars in the making at that position and then throw them out? And then you're sort of looking at it and going, well, now what are we going to do? So that's one of the big things I look at in terms of these guys that you just don't want to lose. They're young, they're smart, they're really talented, and they've got the freedom to sort of work and develop. I'm also a fan of Joker Phillips. As a wide receivers coach, uh, you know, former head coach of Kentucky. I know Travis Benjamin's a big fan of his. Uh, he's talked about him and his recent stuff about how he wants to resign long term. Wilbur Montgomery gets some grief, but he's basically a legend as a running backs coach. And I don't know enough about the tight ends coach, but I know there's a lot of talk about him. So for me, from the offensive standpoint, the big thing in the offseason is find a very good best money can buy type situation offensive line coach that's got to be the first thing you get if you can do that suddenly this situation looks a lot better hopefully cam irving gets back to basics and he can really sort of fix what he what he's doing wrong and some of these things can get back to normal but uh in terms of what you've got on that staff there's just this just screams to me like a some stupid nfl films thing or 30 for 30 on another coaching staff Cleveland, got rid of, and then all these star- yeah there you go all these stars are in the building and you're just going well why did we get rid of these guys and you're seeing some of it that's the oh, thing no Ray Barnage was a guy now he's a star and I you know I, I've said I think he's better suited than the number two tight end but he's been great he's, yeah he's, he's still gonna put up a thousand yards so is Benjamin I mean yeah. they're, they're both gonna yeah. receive for a thousand yards while everybody was coming into the season wondering who the hell was going to catch the football, and they were also wondering who the hell was going to throw it. And the answer has been it pretty much doesn't frigging matter because we're going to be productive regardless on the offensive side of the ball. And to me, that all comes back to, to Flip and O'Connell, and I'll, just to put a bow on that part of it, I mean, you want to talk about a guy that's been around quarterbacks. You mentioned the one year that Flip had been an offensive coordinator at San Jose State. Well, he made David Fales a friggin' star. And, you know, then coming out last year, he's the quarterback's coach in Oakland. Well, how do you feel about Oakland's quarterback right now, Mr. Listener? And while you're doing that, let's realize that Josh McCown played his best football of his very lengthy career and that Johnny Manziel has developed into somebody we're actually discussing as an option and not just because he was the number 22 pick in the draft. So to me, there's just way too much there to go getting awfully excited about throwing the baby out with the proverbial bathwater here. So how about the rest of the offense? When, yeah, go ahead. Go ahead. Well, I was just to say, and on his way out, Derek Carr could not say enough nice things True. about Flip. And this is the one, big, the one big difference with Flip that I think with Shanahan, and this can't be emphasized enough, Flip is a very inclusive guy, more of a, a player's coach, and I know some people think that's bad, in terms of communicating guys, getting guys involved, getting guys who want to be there. And that was the thing Shanahan really didn't do. He's a, a verifiable genius when it comes to X's and O's. But he had his guys, he had his guys he didn't trust, and he's a guy who he, he almost works like a, uh, what, man, I'm trying to think, the basketball coach the name who comes in and trades everybody. Larry Brown, who has his guys, he's going to come in and trade off every piece he doesn't like. That's sort of what Shanahan is. Flip is the guy who says, I've got this, this, and this. I'm going to make it work. 
around these guys. You look at it with Duke Johnson. This is a rookie who's one of the top rookie receivers in the league this year. He's a running back. So there's just all these things to sort of be excited about uh, with, with this group, and you're just like, man, I really hate to waste it. Yeah, somewhere in the past here, there's a, a conversation, and maybe even the week of the Raiders game this year uh, with Chris Hansen, who um, has always been one of my go-to Raiders guys, and he's reasonably well connected there in Oakland, and and he had nothing. I mean, he had, he had you know had plenty of occasions to sit down and talk with Flip. He had great things to say about it, and you know said the same thing you did, which was that Derek Carr just couldn't say enough about how big for his development John D. Filippo had been. So I I see this exactly as you do. I think it'd be a huge error to to chuck everybody and have the result of that be. DeFilippo and O'Connell go somewhere else. Um, you know, there's one more thing about O'Connell, too. If you read Bruce Feldman's book, The Quarterback, The QB, it's called, but it's a great read if you haven't read it. I'm sure, Pete, you've probably been through it or at least heard most of it. Uh, but at any rate, O'Connell was the guy pre-draft uh, that Manziel was working with, along with, you know, Whitfield and these other guys. But O'Connell was really his dude. And there's a passage in there where he sits down with O'Connell for some film uh, some film review and some film work the first time as as O'Connell's there to help him get ready for sort of the classroom and meeting portion of the draft process, right? And so it's O'Connell's job to get this guy ready for what is coming down the pike at the draft when you meet with all the teams and they put you on the board and they ask you all your questions already. And, you know, a paragraph into it, O'Connell says, man, you are so much further ahead than I thought you would be at this point, which to me only tells you how far he's come now. Because the, the difference in the player, like you were explaining, the difference in the player between Tennessee and now, it's just a completely different guy. I mean, and even the one-week separation. I mean, you could tell if that's indicative of the kind of learning curve and, and learning speed with which we're going to be watching Johnny Manziel get better, um, I'm on board for that. Absolutely. And, and I'm thrilled that they're giving him the rest of the season but the thing that makes me the happiest is that he earned the shot to get the rest of the season. It wasn't you. You. It, it'll be a, a much more questionable situation if he played like he did against Cincinnati, which was not very good. And Mike Pettin said, "Here, you're the star of the rest of the season." It would go against what everything he said, everything Farmer said about you don't. Nothing's handed. Everything's earned. Instead, he goes to Pittsburgh. He plays the best game of his career. Clearly, takes steps forward. And now he's earned the shot to take the risk. I mean, you can say that Josh McCown's better. Uh, I probably still would. But at the very least, there's an argument that says Johnny's at least in the conversation that you couldn't have done with Tennessee, honestly, and you couldn't have done, honestly, with the Bengals. And that's, that's where I think this is huge. And the, guy, and a, the potential for Manziel to get that springboard is convincing what was his biggest detractor. It's not a secret anymore that Mike Pettin did not want Johnny Manziel. Initially, but the idea that well he doesn't want him now, he he seems to have invested a lot of uh, coaching and time capital into this kid, and for a guy he didn't want, he's gotten a lot better. And that to me that speaks to a lot of things that are going on in the organization. But that's to me that's that's something that gives me hope. With people who are stubborn and 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 having their own agendas and all this stuff, is you've got this guy and he said, look, I didn't want him, but I've got him. Let's see what we can do with him. And now we're starting to see what hopefully could be, you know, the start of something special. Now, ultimately, he's going to have some bumps. There's no question. But it's how he's going to bounce back, how he's going to make plays. But just looking at where he's, where he's come from, from a guy that was not in the discussion. It was a lost cause. 
he was nothing to a guy where you're like, well, he's fun, man. I, you know, I hope he's betting himself as much as everybody would like him to be that guy. If he can do it, suddenly you've got this special quarterback and maybe he's not as good as Derek Carr, but he could put himself in the argument with Teddy Bridgewater pretty quick. He could put himself in the conversation with Blake Bortles pretty quick. And all of a sudden it changes the perception of this team, which is the other thing with this whole Manziel thing is if he plays well down the stretch and you're a three and thirteen football team, it's a lot different looking three and thirteen sure or is. four and twelve or whatever it is than if he than if we go down and there's just nothing to build on. If you've got this kid who's genuinely getting it, then it's suddenly, man, I can't wait for next year. It's you know, what can we do to make this thing better instead of Man, we got to blow this thing up again. Who are we going to get, and all this? And the, you know, I'm hoping, I'm hoping for everybody's sake, and obviously, just selfishly as a bronze fan, that they can get to that point where we get to a point where we're talking about, man, what, what can we do to take the next step? What can we do to get better? As opposed to, man, how are we going to start this thing over again? Amen. And wouldn't it be something if uh, if it turned out sort of uh, poetically that Johnny Manziel, of all people, were to effectively you know, save Mike Pettin's job. I mean, that, that that would be the effect of that, basically, right? I mean, it's kind of a, a funny little scenario to have play out, but I think we're all hoping for it, or at least most of us are, and at least uh, if you're already hoping for both Manziel to fail and Pettin to get fired, I give you the double middle fingers for all Browns fans everywhere. And with that, we're going to call it. Pete, I really appreciate it, man. We're going to get you back on again in the next couple of weeks and uh, and keep talking about what we're seeing with the quarterback primarily. But, uh, you know, I also want to start talking to you about areas of need, and I know you do some work there at Draft Breakdown, so I want to start talking prospects, and we'll get to all that. But that was Pete Smith, ladies and gentlemen. Please follow him on Twitter at underscore Pete Smith underscore. You can find him, of course, doing work at Draft Breakdown and these articles that are Brown specific that we've been discussing on this podcast on uh, on a semi-frequent basis are at nflspinzone.com so you can check them out there as well. Pete, thanks so much again for joining me, man. I do appreciate it. Always love it. All right, that is it for this episode. Hope you enjoyed those conversations. My thanks again to Brendan Justin and Pete for their uh, for their time and thoughts this week and uh, hopefully we'll be seeing some brighter days at least uh, over these next six games and hopefully heading off into the offseason that's it this was episode 34 of the Browns Note podcast we'll be back next week to preview the Monday night battle against the Ravens talk to you then everybody (laughs) 